Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan, and I am here with my co-host, Anna. Hey, everyone. We have a great guest for you today. Her name is Dr. Sona Delurgio, and she is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a psychoanalyst, and a certified eating disorder specialist. And she is here with us today to talk about eating disorders in teens. She's filled with so much information, and I can't wait to get started. Sona, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you. Hi, Tara and Anna. So great to be here. So you already introduced me a little bit. I'll just say I've been practicing for 27 years, working with mostly women and girls, uh, working with a lot of food and body image issues, eating disorders, uh, also relationships and trauma. My passion is to help women and girls feel empowered to be who they are, use their voice, not get trapped in some of these issues that women and girls tend to get trapped in, having to be a certain way. And I have two teenage daughters. I feel especially passionately about women's empowerment. Mm -hmm. I definitely relate to that, having my girl here, Anna, as well as a stepdaughter who's the same age. And I feel like there is a different relationship that I have with the girls as far as like the sense of investment I have in them growing up to feel like empowered women. Absolutely. Yeah, we both feel that deeply in our hearts, Tara. Mm -hmm. Put in context eating disorders, like what are they? Just give us some general information. Okay. So today I really want to familiarize people with eating disorders, what they look like, what signs to look for, how to best prevent them from developing in the first place. Because we know education and prevention are the best approach to minimizing eating disorders. So I'm so glad to be here talking about this with you too. So let me start with a couple of statistics here. This one's pretty fascinating. 30 million Americans are affected by eating disorders at some point in their lifetimes. Wow. So to put that in perspective, the population of Texas is 28.3 million. Mm. It's huge. Generally, teen girls are at a higher risk for developing an eating disorder than our boys. But we're finding more openness for males uh, starting to speak about it these days. But about 3% of teen girls ages 13 to 18 are diagnosed with an eating disorder. And about a quarter of those with anorexia are males. We think it's probably a bit more because males are usually ashamed to admit they may be suffering from something that's usually thought to be for females only. And eating disorders in younger males look different compared with females like they could have more of a focus on getting muscular than getting thin, which could make it harder to observe if there's an eating disorder. It's interesting you say that because, you know, I, I have a son who is 13 and he is very aware of pictures on Instagram. He looks at a lot of pictures of athletes. Mm -hmm. He'll say, oh, I want to be him. And I'm like, oh, you know, he's a basketball player. You want to be a basketball player? He's like, no, I just want to be built like him. Look how big his muscles are. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring up a little bit about that, just that brief comment about boys, because I think we just want to stay mindful of that and stay open to listening to some of those cues. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, so this was, you know, a million years ago, in health class, we had a speaker come in and it was a male and he was a college student and he talked about his journey with anorexia. And so I was lucky enough to hear firsthand from a male with anorexia when I was, let's say, 15 or 16. Yeah. And they were not, guys were not talking about it back then. I think I had one guy in a nutrition class I took in college who was anorexic, but guys were just not talking about it. So that's amazing that you had someone come and speak to your health class. Yeah, I do think I was lucky to get that perspective from a male, especially knowing what we know about girls and college age girls really being a vulnerable population. And I remember on campus when I was in college, there was a lot of messaging, right? There was posters about, you know, come to the counseling center, some statistics about eating disorders with girls, things like that. But I, I just certainly don't remember seeing that same sort of information disseminate boys. Yeah. And most of the uh, research that I have found is on girls. So what's coming up for boys is relatively new, but we're mm -hmm. glad to see that in there. So I can get into some of the different eating disorders here. We know they come up from a variety of factors, by the way, which would include physical, emotional and social issues. And I'll be getting into that. 
And so let's start with just some of the different eating disorders. We have some general ones that I'll just talk about today. And most everybody's heard about anorexia. This is self-induced starvation and extreme weight loss. Someone's choosing to not feed themselves. There's uh, difficulty in maintaining appropriate body weight that's for height and age. And many of these people have a distorted view of their body image. They have an intense fear of being fat or gaining weight, and they're feeling fat or overweight despite dramatic weight loss. So what do they do? They typically uh, restrict the number of calories and the foods that they eat. Sometimes they also exercise compulsively, and some of them even will purge by vomiting or using laxatives. This will still fall under anorexia. It's just very minimal amount of food and whatever they have, they're getting rid of. You can't tell a person struggling with anorexia by looking at them. They don't need to be underweight to be struggling. And here's a really interesting piece. Studies have found that even larger bodied people can have anorexia, although they're less likely to be diagnosed due to cultural prejudice against fat and obesity. Wow. So I think that's probably a really helpful piece of information is that people associate anorexia with somebody who is visibly underweight. Right. Emaciated. And that significant component to it is the restriction of calories and potentially over-exercising. Potentially, yeah. And in, in larger bodied people, we're still seeing malnourishment. They're still restricting, but there are a number of metabolic factors that keep their weight high. Uh, but some of the harm is still being done to their bodies. Okay. So shall we move on to bulimia? Sure. Okay. And bulimia, you may have heard of, it's characterized by repeated episodes of binging and then purging. So binging would be eating beyond the point of fullness, feeling out of control during a binge. And purging is anything that we'd call compensatory. It's compensating or making up for just having binged. But this could be vomiting or using laxatives or fasting or diet pills or excessive exercise. I've had a number of girls and women I've worked with who have said, hey, I ate a big dinner tomorrow. I'm not going to eat anything at all. They kind of make these pacts with themselves. We might also see in bulimia frequent dieting. And there's definitely an extreme concern with body weight and shape. As opposed to anorexia, bulimic usually maintains a normal body weight with just a slight fluctuation. So the part that's really unhealthy about it is the strain they're putting on their bodies from restricting and then overindulging. Right. So there's the physical strain, absolutely. And it's an emotional strain, too. There's so much shame wrapped up in it, and it becomes a real cycle. As is true for a lot of these eating disorders, it's a bit of a vicious circle. There's a lot of shame and a lot of secrecy and sometimes leading to depression and anxiety. We'll get to that. What's underlying a lot of the eating behaviors is emotions. So soothing those emotions by controlling food in one way or another. So you mentioned the word control Mm -hmm. because that's a word I associate often with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. Well, when life feels out of control, when emotions feel out of control, there is one thing that somebody can't control that in their minds they think they can control, and that's their bodies. You know, I can't control what is going on in the society around me. I can't control what's happening with my depression or my anxiety or my stress about school. But what I can do is really double down and perfect my body or make my body something I think it needs to be. So I reduce my calories or I overexercise or I do any of these restrictive and harmful behaviors. And that means I could make a change in my body. There's something I can affect. Mm, okay. It's a false sense of control, but it's very stabilizing for people with eating disorders. So I can just say here that a lot of times there's going to be this duality, this two ways of feeling about having an eating disorder. The one side that feels like I need this, this is what stabilizes me, this is what keeps me where I need to be, this is what keeps me safe, keeps me from having to feel. Then there's the other side that is trapped and feels imprisoned by it, like I can't stop purging, I've already started, or I've just eaten something and I can't hold on to it. Whatever their rationale is going to be, they want to be free of it. They want to get healthy. They want to recover. But these two sides are in conflict with each other. 
So that's a pretty common thing I see in the women and the girls that I work with. Gosh, that must be so stressful. It's stressful. It's painful. It's hard. But I think it's really helpful for people to recognize there's going to be two sides of me in conflict because it's hard to let go of something that you feel has kept you safe and stable. And so to recognize that, recognize how it's been serving you, but then we need to find healthier ways to cope and move through these feelings, these emotions, and this sense of lack of control in life. Well, and if they have these two needs that are in direct conflict with each other, it can just result in them feeling unhappy all the time because it's impossible to meet both of these needs at the same time. Because if they're, on the one hand, they feel empowered by having control, but on the other hand, they feel burdened by this need to have control, then they're always in a state of angst over it. Do I have that right? Right. And that's why we want to help. That's why I'm here to help. That's why we have a lot of treatment programs. And that's where friends and family come in. Although it's a, it's a disorder, having a lot of shame and secrecy, really coming out of that secrecy, leaning on somebody or someplace to help you through is what's really going to help you start to get out of this trap. So it's essential to have a strong support system. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let me go through a couple other eating disorders and then we'll move into some of the, how to determine if that's what somebody has going on. So binge eating disorder, this is the most common eating disorder in the U.S. It's similar to bulimia, uh, meaning they're consuming large quantities of food, feeling out of control about it. But it's different in that the person with binge eating disorder isn't going to purge the food. They're not going to get rid of it. And when somebody's in the binge, they'll continue to eat, sometimes to the point of uncomfortable pain. And again, just like the other eating disorders, this one also is followed by a lot of feelings of guilt and shame, anxiety, and depression. Are they oftentimes overweight? Not, not necessarily. Oftentimes we'll see some extra weight, but it's not necessarily the case. And you know what? We all might binge from time to time. You might have a bad day or decide you want to emotionally eat or stress eat or something like that. Binge eating disorders really when someone is doing this regularly, it's recurring. It keeps going. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this next one is orthorexia. We might see it in the majority of our culture, <laughs> but I don't know if it's an official diagnosis for everybody, but let me lay it out and then we can go from there. So uh, the term orthorexia was defined in the late 90s, and it's about an obsession with proper or healthful eating. People with orthorexia become so fixated on healthy eating that they actually damage their own well-being. They're really preoccupied with the quality and the purity of the food they're eating. It's like an obsession with being healthy. So if you know somebody who's obsessed with their food being clean and raw and fresh and organic and GMO-free... It gets in the quality of your life, gets in the way of that. It gets in the way of you being able to just freely go out and eat with somebody and comfortably engage in social events. I haven't heard of that. Is it very common? It's pretty common. This is not in our DSM, by the way, but it's included in the, um, the really common eating disorders. And I think with our culture of wellness... I think we're not using the word diet as much, but in our culture of diet and wellness and finding that magic bullet, that magic cure, the perfect way of eating, some people take this a little too far. So when you're noticing somebody is kind of obsessed and preoccupied, really that that's what we would call orthorexia. So that person who, when you said the thing about eating pure, hyper-focused on what types of foods are going into their mouth at all times avoiding certain food groups in entirety. Like I only eat, you know, fruit that's been sourced from here or there and it inhibits their ability to just be out and about in the world. And but think about vegans, like they think about what they're eating, but I don't, those aren't considered eating disorders, right? That's just how they. Right. We want to look at the level of obsessiveness and preoccupation with it. Someone can choose to eat healthy. That doesn't mean they've got orthorexia. Someone can choose to say, I want to have only organic fruits and vegetables. I hear pesticides can be bad for me. So they're going to do their best to find organic wherever they can. If they can't, they'll make a compromise. They'll have whatever fruit and vegetable is available. Someone with orthorexia won't be able to do that. Or they'll limit giant portions of food like you just said. 
And Anna, somebody can decide they're going to be vegan that that really is moving in the direction of anorexia or really restricting their food. And they're using veganism as a way to leave out big portions of food, big macronutrients. But just being vegan doesn't mean you're anorexic. It seems like this type of eating is very glorified in our culture. It absolutely is. And so it's condoned. You can hide in it. Mm -hmm. Like you're almost superior if you're really selective about the food you put in your mouth versus veering on unhealthy or obsessive. Right. And, and the trouble with this, when it goes too far, when healthy eating goes too far and becomes obsessive, just like anorexia, when you're restricting the amount of food and the variety of food you can eat, it makes it more likely that you're going to be malnourished. Mm. So same physical consequences as anorexia. So is it true that eating disorders are more prevalent in first world countries? I would say yes. Yes, it is. And um, really culturally influenced. Okay. You know, as you know, I specialize in working with kids and learning how to use social media and technology in a moderate way. And I get concerned about the messages that kids are getting inundated with. This past weekend, we were at a friend's house and my children don't have TikTok on their phones. And my friend, who's an adult, does. This is their aunt, by the way. And so we were just looking at it and we were talking about, should we make a TikTok video for fun? And so we sat there and we kind of fell down the hole of TikTok. <laughs> All of these videos and like what the current trends are and people have different interpretations of one video. I wasn't surprised, but I was. it was interesting to me to see how much of the videos were related to dancing in a seductive way, showing off your abs, wearing a bikini and things like that, that was very much so. Yeah. And some of it was really sexualized in other ways. It wasn't really about it being sexy so much as it was about showing pride of like, look at my thigh gap or look at my huge big biceps. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the biggest elements of prevention that we work on is helping kids and adults really to consume media wisely. Uh, we want them to be a discriminating consumer, you know, between advertisers and then what people are doing on social media. We know that the majority of women and girls say their body confidence goes down and their anxiety around their beauty and appearance goes up when they're watching social media. Nearly all girls, 95%, say they see a flood of negative beauty critiques on social media posts, comments, photos, and videos, and they wish social media were a space that empowered more body positivity. What do I mean by negative beauty critiques? These are going to be comments that you see on people's posts, which then take someone down into a really deep place of self-esteem issues and fear of those negative comments. So some of the comments that we're seeing, of course, they are negative. Somebody's commenting that you look fat in that bathing suit, or mm -hmm. there's times when I see girls will comment on each other and they are giving a compliment. They'll say, your brows are on point, or your hair looks gorgeous, beautiful highlights, or cute bikini, or whatever it is. Are those comments as damaging or as impactful as negative comments? Is that healing or is that still promoting the preoccupation? That's a great question. So much of that depends on the person and what they're seeking when they're posting this on social media, when they're posting pictures or videos of themselves. Because in some cases, that can be just a nice compliment. There's a study that found social media use is linked to seeing yourself and your body as an object to be seen and judged by others. And if you're someone who's got some self-esteem issues and you're seeking that kind of validation, that's going to keep you stuck in that. It's going to keep you looking at yourself as an object just to be seen and evaluated. And using social media for just 30 minutes a day can change the way you view your own body. Hmm. So it's a big pool and to swim in it, you're taking a risk, but you know, we can arm ourselves and we can arm our kids to really take it all in wisely and to know themselves as they're posting and know what they're looking for and how to have boundaries and barriers 
around some of the comments that might come their way. So I'm sitting here across from Anna and I'm seeing her with her inquisitive look. When you hear Sona talk about this and you hear about the potential impact that all these images and social media have, like, how does that relate to you? I mean, it's definitely relatable. There's been conversations my friends have had and we're like, wow, she looks so good. And they're like, ha, I wish I could pull that off. I could never do that. Just little comments like that where you could definitely see social media, how they view themselves or how they're putting themselves out there, how it can impact us. Do you find yourself factoring in or thinking about your body when you are determining whether or not to post something on social media? I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not a kind of person who posts a lot. Definitely. I, I think my appearance is a big thing that anyone really thinks about. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I feel it. Yeah. You know, when I look at other women and they have a couple kids or they're my age and I'm like, wow, they look 10 years younger or wow, they look fantastic in those shorts or whatever. I mean, I know I'm aware of that and I have a fully developed grown-up brain. I can't mm-hmm. even imagine what the influence could be on someone who doesn't have their identity quite figured out as a teen. I mean, I also think, wow, look at their self-confidence. Look how great they are to be able to post something positive about it. It's like, I could never do that. Like, I don't even have, I'm not able to just post something and be like, look, thought I looked cute today, blah, blah, blah. And then you see a bunch of other girls like, wow, you look so great. They just cheer on and I'm like, wow, like I wish I had the self-confidence to just post something and see if everybody would say that about me. Have you ever seen somebody post something and somebody say something mean? Um, I've seen it on like celebrity posts or Mm -hmm. whatever, but I haven't seen it on my personal friends. Do you feel like generally if people make comments about someone's clothes or appearance or body they're saying something encouraging yeah I think so yeah okay but I mean there are some of those girls who like will say something nice and then off their phones turn to the other friend and be like she can't really pull it off I just said it to be nice mm-hmm. so then it's like ooh, there's always behind screens that yeah so even if somebody says something nice on screen you can't necessarily feel secure mm-hmm. that that's what their true belief is yeah Hmm. You just never truly know. Wow. Okay. Well, I think that that social media piece is something that as parents, we have to think about the impact of those messages. And there's a lot of times as a parent, I might say things, I might point things out of what message is being sent, but I'm not sure that my voice is going to be the voice that my girls listen to. I mean, what do you think, Sona? A little bit. Uh, One of the things that we know is there is a huge movement towards body acceptance, body positivity, diversity in the media right now. And that's coming from girls and women around the world, really. And I think that's creating a little bit of a cultural shift. It hasn't fully taken over, but it's there. And so there is a force there that I'm directing a lot of teen girls towards, my own daughters towards as much as possible to be able to fill up on that goodness. Yeah, I think celebrities are trying to. Yeah, I um, see like I follow a feminist page on Instagram. They're always posting things like they'll show like a row of women and they're like all shapes and sizes and they're all beautiful inside and out and stuff like that. And then like, I remember, I don't know who it was off the top of my head, but they we're at some interview and somebody made a comment about their body image. And then like they did this whole speech about how it shouldn't matter about their body image or like if they're gaining weight or losing weight, that that's not the point or whatever. But I've definitely seen celebrities come out and share their view on body image and how people see them. Do you think that matters though? I mean, do you think that helps Hannah? I mean, like it does make me feel like, wow, like good for them for standing up for themselves. Like, I think that's great. I think it's great. I think it's... It's helpful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think we're really lucky to have more diversity in our pop culture now than ever before. It's a bit of an uphill battle because it's such a powerful age-old message um, to be thin, to diet, and that thin means healthy, and um, that's what gets you attention. So this message is relatively new. The, the being more more about self-acceptance, but it's gaining steam. And if we can all put our power behind it, I think we'll start to see it grow. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Yeah, me too. 
as a person who <laughs> is a little curvy, yeah. I'd like it to be accepted. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Tara. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Sona, what can cause one person to develop an eating disorder and another person to not experience an eating disorder? Right. Yeah, that's a great question because we know that everybody's kind of in the same culture and getting the same messages, or we might even see twin studies or siblings in the same family. One develops an eating disorder and another doesn't. So I'll get into a little bit about what contributes to them. And they're really complex. There's a lot of things that contribute to them. So we're looking at psychological reasons, interpersonal or like relational reasons, social and biological. So let me just name a few. For psychological, we might see someone with low self-esteem, feeling inadequate or feeling a lack of control in their life. We might see depression, anxiety, anger, stress or loneliness. For interpersonal or relational factors, troubled personal relationships, family relationships, difficulty expressing emotions and feelings, and also a history of being teased or ridiculed based on size or weight, that age-old bullying. Social factors, there are cultural pressures that glorify thinness or muscularity, puts a high value on obtaining the perfect body, are very narrow definitions of beauty that include, you know, only women and men of specific body weights and shapes. Our cultural norms that value people on the basis of their appearance, not their inner qualities and strengths. And also, we're talking more about this now, the stress related to racial, ethnic, size and weight related, and other kinds of discrimination or prejudice. Those are big social factors. And then the biological, which gets kind of exciting here. The scientists are doing a lot of research. They're still researching a lot of the possible biological causes, but they're finding that some people with eating disorders, there's certain chemicals in the brain that control hunger and appetite and digestion. They found those to be unbalanced. So what that means for eating disorders is still being researched. And also they're learning that eating disorders often run in families. Scientists are finding there are strong genetic reasons for eating disorders. And it's all still really new, but it's very promising in helping us learn more about eating disorders. So as you can see, super complex, coming from a variety of potential causes. But once they've started, there's this vicious cycle of physical and emotional harm. When I work with clients who are teenagers, and they demonstrate some characteristics that suggest an eating disorder might be at play. And sometimes I work with teens and they've already had that diagnosis and they may have had some exposure to some really fantastic treatment and we're working on some of the other things like family dynamics. And mm -hmm. But there's times that parents will express to me privately, oftentimes the mother will express that they had issues with eating when they were a youth, but they've kept it private from their teen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Is that something that if a mother has had struggles with that in her past, is it something she should be making sure her kids understand that that's a risk factor for them and making sure that they have education and be proactive, or they'll look to their mother as a role model for that behavior and be more likely to imitate it? So it depends on if the mother is still practicing some of that disordered eating, because that's what kids are going to pick up on her actions, what they're observing much more than what she's saying. If she's already worked through and is in a space where she's pretty much taking care of herself in a healthy way and eating a variety of foods, I think it's okay and actually recommended to talk about, hey, I struggled with this when I was younger. Here's what I learned along the way. I wouldn't necessarily say she has to say, hey, you're at risk for this, but I would say we want to just instill an overall sense in the home that we eat a variety of foods, we, we focus on, you know, what feels right, we listen to ourselves, we listen to hunger and fullness cues, we get good, joyful movement. So the parents can model all of that. And, you know, I've had moms too that tell me, hey, I had a history of this. And many of them do tell their kids that kind of uh, as a word of caution. And some kids are going to take that as helpful info, but many will hear it as sometimes mom's making it all about herself. So you want to just know your kid, 
you want to have a sense of your relationship with your kid to know how you want to talk about it. And if you need help, reach out to a therapist. They'll help you. They'll help you have those good conversations. Well, and sometimes what cues me in is the mom might have a lot of preoccupation with food intake. So they they don't convey to me that they have a history of it. And they honestly might not view themselves as having had a history with disordered eating. But there'll be a lot of power struggles, stress about kids eating foods or the fact that they went and got a snack and didn't ask permission. And Absolutely. Yeah. Versus having the child have any control over what, and, and I don't mean little kids, I don't mean two, three-year-olds, but you know, for sure, these kids who are 12, 13 years old and they come home and they help themselves to a snack after school. And then it turns into a huge discussion and debate. And then the kids start sneaking. And then, you know, mom is viewing that as a sign of a lack of integrity because now we have dishonesty and it can really turn into something that is a huge stress point in the home. Absolutely. And power struggles are huge already with parents and teens that are just kind of growing into who they are. So some of the power struggles are normal, but we see some really entrenched power struggles, impasses in some eating disorder um, situations here where It's almost getting too hard to move forward. And that's where having outside help is helpful. But in the meantime, if we can prevent it from ever getting there in the first place, what we want to do is make sure that parents are really in touch and in tune with themselves and what they're doing with their own comments about their body, their own actions around how they're eating, comments they're making about other people in passing that they might not think much of. All of this really gets absorbed by kids. They're watching. They're watching what we do. Mm, Okay. So let me get into some signs that either Anna, you and your friends, you can look for, teens can look for, parents can look for, just a few signs. There's a lot of them, but I'm just going to name a few. So you want to notice if someone is preoccupied with their weight, their food, their calories, fat grams, and dieting. They might be obsessively following food and healthy lifestyle blogs on social media. You want to notice if there's any new practice with food or fad diets, like cutting out entire food groups, like no sugar, no carbs, no dairy. If someone's making a lot of comments about feeling fat or overweight, or they show extreme concern with their body weight and shape, if they deny feeling hungry, if they're pulling away from their usual friends and activities and becoming more isolated or withdrawn and secretive, or you might notice they're making excuses to avoid meals or they're uncomfortable eating in public or with others. Sometimes you'll notice they're hiding their body with baggy clothes. And extreme mood swings. This is a harder one to really separate out because that's just part of growing up and being a teenager sometimes. And being a mom sometimes, (laughs) having extreme mood swings. But if it's sudden and different, you want to pay attention. What is that caused by? Like, what is, is it just the stress that they're under or is there not eating enough? Yeah. Or like, is it irritability from not enough caloric intake or is it chemical imbalance? Like, or is it all those things? Remember how complex it is. The biggest piece of it is going to be the internal struggle, which this vicious cycle that they're in and the shame and the secrecy and the guilt along with the malnourishment and kind of putting your body through the ringer. Yeah, I would think that there's like a lot of headaches and mm-hmm. lightheadedness. Not getting restful sleep. For sure. Yep. I know I don't sleep well if I'm really hungry. Yep. And I don't sleep well if I'm really full. Yeah. Yeah. They just are overly thinking about everything. I mean, that could take a toll on your body. It's a very kind of an anxious mindset, a preoccupied mind that is going to be leaning towards possibly trying to manage their food and their bodies. So already that's one of the, uh, maybe a temperament that we might see as someone that's more anxious and preoccupied. So their mind will be running at night, makes it hard to relax, keeps them more stressed. Mm -hmm. So what can you do to help? Um, If you're worried about somebody that you kind of have been seeing some of these signs, you want to approach them with care non-judgment, empathy, and you want to offer your support. And it's really important that you approach them privately and when you feel like there's enough time to really talk. A lot of times they might be unwilling to accept there's a problem. Maybe they know deep down inside, but for the most part, they've convinced themselves, I got this. This is not a problem. You don't know what you're talking about. So in this case, don't push. 
it's important to respect their space. You've planted the seed, you've shown you're there without judgment, and you're willing to support them. But you can let them know you're always there if they'd like to talk. But if they are open to hearing your concerns, you can let them know some of the signs you've seen and that you feel worried about them. And I would encourage them to talk with their parents. Maybe you can even support them in in doing that if that's helpful for them, if you feel comfortable with that. Then after that, a doctor or a therapist can really help assess kind of what level their disordered eating might be at and advise them about the kind of treatment that could help them recover. And there's also a lot of support groups for them so they don't have to feel alone. I think one thing I've noticed as a clinician is that there's times where parents will express concerns about their kids eating and they feel like it borders on disordered eating, but they have the impression that in order for their child to be appropriate for treatment, that it needs to have gone like really far, like they need to be severely underweight or they need to be actively purging through vomiting or they need to, you know, never eat in public, whatever it is, is I feel like treatment takes a long time like they look at that as being a really extreme thing to get treatment for. Well, yeah. And it depends on how severe those eating problems are. If it's somebody who is severely underweight and malnourished, they need some pretty serious intervention. If it's someone who's grappling with some kind of dieting and commenting on their body image, that might be fine with some at-home conversations or just some weekly therapy. Okay. And there's steps in between, you know, you've got more intensive therapy, you have treatment programs, and all the way up to if somebody's really starving themselves and has to be refed, we're talking about hospitalization first, but, you know, that's the extreme. I think a pediatrician and parent would have noticed before it got to that degree and intervened. Can having a child or teen be malnourished impact their body's ability to trigger puberty? Yes. So if you think about this, we are geared up to have everything in place before we can procreate, before we can conceive and have a baby and grow a baby and have a baby, right? And if we are malnourished in any way, our body's systems are going to shut down and only leave energy for survival. So if someone's severely underweight, restricting their food, they're going to possibly lose their period or not get their period for a very long time. That's one of the signs. We call that amenorrhea, but that's one of the signs of anorexia. Hmm. Okay. And here's a message from our sponsor. If you're like most clinicians and consultants, you probably find yourself saying the same things or focusing on the same message with your clients over and over again. That probably means you should write a book. While a book can be a powerful tool to expand your reach and establish yourself as a thought leader, the idea of writing one can be overwhelming. But that's where Eaton Press comes in. Eaton Press provides writing coaching, editing, and publishing services to help business professionals and generally smart people write, publish, and market their books as a tool to grow their business. Check them out at eatonpress.com to see the full range of programs, resources, and services they offer to make your book happen. Welcome back, Sona. I had one last primary topic that I wanted to discuss with you today, and that is what strategies can parents use to be preventative of their preteens and teens developing an eating disorder? So, yes, let's get into some more about prevention, and we'll get into some strategies too. And I want to say prevention here is both what teens can have on their minds and what parents can also hold in mind as they're kind of creating a healthy household for eating disorder prevention. So let me just repeat the point first. We want to consume media wisely. We want to be a discriminating consumer. We talked a little bit about the impact that that has earlier in the podcast. But you just want to remember that the images on social media and in advertising, they're usually chosen and perfected using technology. I want to hold that in mind. You want to know that celebrities and friends are posting their best day and their best lighting and the best position with the best filters. You don't want to let that sway you. And you want to stay really tuned into yourself when you're scrolling your feed and see if you can notice what is triggering feelings and reactions in you. 
what grabs you and makes you judge your own life for your own appearance. Just become curious about those feelings and what you need rather than thinking you're not enough. Okay. That's really good advice. I need to do that myself. Yeah, definitely. We always have to hold that in mind. Second really important point for everyone to hold in mind is don't do diets or restrictive wellness plans. Diets don't work. We know this. About 95% of people who lose weight by dieting will regain it in one to five years. Let me say a little bit about why that happens. There are so many biological changes that happen in your body, which make it near impossible to maintain your weight loss. And this happens in your brain, your hormones, and your metabolism. So you're just setting yourself up for disordered eating and repetitive chronic dieting much of the time. And dieting also sets up unreasonable expectations for depriving yourself of food and tolerating high levels of hunger. That's not okay. We don't want to be doing that. And it can lead to binge eating because people get so hungry or they feel so deprived or they can't take it anymore. So instead, you want to learn about intuitive eating and mindful eating. This is the best way to honor your hunger and your cravings and what your body needs. And when you do that, you won't get pulled into the crazy restrictive diets. You'll know what your body needs. You'll know your hunger and fullness and be able to feed yourself appropriately, have a much more harmonious relationship with your body. And finally, you want to be you. You want to listen to your body and value your body. You want to embrace an attitude of body acceptance. So finding your connection to who you are, your value as a person, your own beauty, Living peacefully in your own skin, it's going to allow you to separate from the cultural pressures to look a particular way. And we talked about the great movements that are going on that are challenging the unreal cultural messages. So get vocal behind that if you can. I would think that the message of acceptance is harder for teens to adopt than a more mature person who, well, I'm obviously reflecting on myself here and that I'm just so much more accepting of myself now. Like, the older I get, the more accepting I am of myself. I wonder how much of this challenge has a developmental aspect to it. Developmentally, when it comes to kids' ability to reason, reason abstractly, be more prone to social pressures, this feels like a bigger ask for teens than it does for a fully developed adult. What do you think? I think it's a big ask whether we're talking about teens or adults. But it's the direction we're wanting to take things. And I think there is a developmental piece to it for sure. So I think by the time you get to a more mature age, you've gotten more of a sense of who you are, you feel more solid in yourself, and you can balance that in a little bit better. But something different, Tara, than when you and I were teenagers is now we have more of a language around it. We have more of a movement around it. We have more people getting on board for diversity and body acceptance. So I'm hoping that uh, younger people will be able to advocate a little bit more, get on board. You know, I have two teen daughters, and they have run into some of their friends who want to try diets. And they talk them out of it and say, why would you want to do that? And I feel proud of that, because I think we've had the right narrative at home to talk about how diets don't work and to embrace who you are. So hopefully that spreads a little bit and starts to integrate a little bit into younger people compared to when we were younger. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's really important to have supportive people around you who lift you up instead of pull you down, who will listen to what you have to say and your reasons, but also make sure that you know that you're accepted, I guess. Yeah, and valued. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that has ever happened in your life, Anna, that you haven't had a message of acceptance? Um, more for myself than from anyone around me. I think I have really supportive friends and a great family to su- who supports me too. So I think I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So let me just mention a few things parents can hold in mind. Parents, you want to catch yourself before you make any disparaging remarks about your own body or your weight or someone else's. It's so easy to just say, oh, you know, I need to wear stretch pants all day because of my gut or whatever. It's in a really negative, disparaging way. That can easily be switched to something like, I'm so comfortable in in these leggings today. I love getting to wear them all day. They make me feel cozy and happy. You can hear the different attitude towards that. I want to say many of my teenage and adult clients remember hearing comments, the disparaging comments like this when they were young. It sticks with them. 
And the comments don't even have to be very blatant, but a passing simple statement could carry a lot of meaning for kids. Also watching parents doing a lot of dieting and restrictive eating. Also, that's more of what's being modeled that the kids are picking up rather than what they're being told. I'm going to ask Anna here to call me out. I'm your mom. I'm the main woman in the house aside from you and your stepsister. What do you think? What do you feel the message has been in our home? What messages am I sending you about my feelings about my own body? I think that you're a great example. Like, you never say anything negative. You're always commenting how cute our outfits are. Or you'll ask me my opinion on a cute shirt. You never say anything that I can think of. I know I've become more aware of it as you've become teenagers, and I'm so aware that you're at such a prime age for developing a negative body image. Okay, so let me say this. In the process of trying to role model body acceptance, I have become more accepting of my figure. I feel like you have so much confidence in your body. Like this morning you said something like, would you like me to give you a hug? No, I said, would you like me to give you a karate chop? (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. So then I gave you a karate chop on your backside. (laughs) Yeah. I do a lot of dancing around or I'll say like, look how cute I am in my new top. Yeah. And so the thing is, in my quest to create that environment, I've made it become true for me. Because initially it was like, I'm doing this because it's good parenting, because this is an important message for me to send my daughters. But then after a while, when you talk like that about yourself, it becomes true. Yeah. And so in reality, this is probably the roundest I've been in my life, but there is no way that this is a phase of my life where I feel negatively about my body. I think some of it was working hard to set the tone for you, and then that made it real. It becomes easier the more you say those things. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I mean, seriously. Sometimes we do things as parents that we, whatever, phone it in, but then it helps us. Tara, that's a beautiful example, and I think that we're always growing no matter what age we are, and I think raising our kids helps us to keep some growth going for ourselves that heals certain aspects of ourselves, and no matter what your age. So I love that example, and I love that you were finding your own way to embrace your body and who you are as you were trying to model for Anna and make it a message for her. Well, my own mother wasn't super down on herself, but she did have a level of self-consciousness about her own body and just how she dressed, you know, like the big coat or not really wanting to go to a relative's wedding because she felt that she didn't have like the look that should be presented at a wedding. I think in my entire childhood, I saw her in a bathing suit one time and we had a pool wow. and it was a private backyard. Yeah. There was no way she would have received any criticism from her four children who just wanted to swim with her in the pool. As an adult, there's never a time when I want to shy away from like going on a water ride at our local amusement park or not go in a lake or not go to a neighborhood pool party because I feel like I don't fit a certain look in my bathing suit. Absolutely. Because the other thing that that's teaching or that that you would be holding in mind for yourself would be, I can't live life until I can't do these things unless I look a certain way or I'm a certain size. And boy, is that putting life on hold? We want to embrace life, enjoy it, and just be part of it. And that's going to help us also feel good in our skin. My best friend, who's my lifelong friend, and she's also curvy. And she is one of the people in my life who I feel is so embracing of her body. Mm -hmm. And she's doing this thing right now where she has several friends who are also curvy, and they're all in a group together. And I'm not even part of it. And they'll take pictures and hashtag them hashtag bikini, and they'll send them to each other. They don't put it on social media. But do you remember this, Anna? Oh, yeah, yeah. And when we're at the beach with her a couple of weeks ago, she has several cute bikinis that she was wearing. So every day she took a selfie and sent it to this group of women. And their goal was to really embrace the bikini because it's so much easier to get to the beach, get your wet suit on and off and get a nice tan. Yeah. And she just like rocks it out. And we've had a super long friendship. And I think her voice has been louder to me than my mother's growing up. It's made a difference. And it's nice to hear from Anna, that she feels that I've role modeled it well for her, because I've wondered sometimes. I mean, girl, we got to own our figures. Yeah, We're fantastic. Totally. <laughs> so uh, a couple other points here. 
that I think are important to hold in mind for parents, talking about feelings and how to talk about feelings. We might be tempted to tell our kids, oh, no, you're beautiful. You look fine. You don't know how lucky you are to have the figure you have or enjoy it now or any of these kinds of things or don't do a diet. You don't need to do a diet. All of this is going to, I think, go in one ear and out the other. We have to learn how to talk about feelings. You want to create an environment where everyone in the home can comfortably talk about feelings without judgment or repercussions. And parents, it may be hard to hear some things. It may be hard to hear if your kids are struggling or sad or feeling down on themselves. So sometimes we might want to minimize that or discount that because they're intense feelings. We don't want to see our kids suffering. But always be open to talking with them about what they're thinking and feeling. So you want to ask open-ended questions. You want to allow enough space and time to let the dialogue just unfold. Just give it time to see where it goes. And if kids aren't ready to talk or share their feelings, you want to let them know your door is always open whenever they would like to talk. So some teenagers don't want to talk. Just sometimes you saying what you need to say and letting them know you're there really helps. I think, too, when parents hear their kids say scary things, and by scary things, it can be small things like, oh, I don't feel like I have friends, or it can be, I wish I was never born. Parents can panic, and they can really work to just counteract it. Like, please don't say that, honey. That's not true. Don't feel that way. And I understand that inclination. I think we've all had that moment with our child, but that really can shut down the conversation or make that child feel badly about feeling that way. They might feel a sense of shame that they even had that feeling and voiced it, especially when their mom was so upset that they said it. Yeah, both. I can see feeling some shame about having it, like something's wrong or something's wrong with me that I feel this way. And the other could be, this really bothers mom. This really makes her feel scared or panicked or anxious. I don't want to do that to her. I don't want to burden her. So I'll just hold that thought privately. And so parents, you can be really transparent. You can say, it's it's so hard for me to hear this or it scares me to hear this because I love you so much and I want you to be feeling strong and solid and happy in your life. But let's let's connect around this. Let's talk about this. I'm here with you. We can move through it together. Something like that, which is also modeling for kids how you express your feelings, but you keep going with it. You can step into it and it's safe and okay and, and you don't have to be alone in it. Yeah. Anna, what were you going to say? I was thinking about the time when I was about 11, maybe 12, and it was the first day of school and I came downstairs wearing my new sweatshirt and new Converse. And I said something about not feeling like I looked very good. And I don't want to say that you dismiss my feelings, but you said something like, oh no, honey, you look fine. And I was like, but I don't feel fine. And you were like, no, you look cute. Let's go. I don't know. I, I think it's good to hear people out more. It can really help. Yeah. And I was looking at you through my parental eyes, and I just thought, you look adorable. And it's hard for me to imagine that you wouldn't feel that same way. And at that time, you were 11 or 12, and teenage years hadn't fully started yet. And I don't think I was on high alert to hear those types of messages. Now that you're well into your teenage years, and I'm aware of the risk factors in your age group, I feel like my ears are much more open to hear signs of you having body image issues. Yeah. I hate that you had that experience. But I also feel like that you're telling me I've made improvements in recognizing when you're having those feelings. Oh, definitely. And I don't think it was that big of a deal. Yeah, but you remember it. Yeah, I guess. And I do feel certain that you looked quite adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Sona, we got off track. Oh, nothing to be sorry for. So what else do we want to make sure that parents know? Yeah, a final point here, and we wanted, uh, it's about teaching kids to find and use their own voice. How do they speak up for themselves? How do they hold on to themselves? And some of the ways that we might notice a person or a teenager, an adult or a teenager, doesn't have a sense of their voice, what a lost voice might look like. It can show up in a number of ways, like perfectionism or second guessing yourself or a lack of confidence anxiety and depression are getting in the way, and an unhealthy relationship with food and body, substance use. So how do we teach the kids to find their voice, or adults too, by the way? First, you want to know yourself. You want to take on habits that help you become more self-reflective, really become aware. Think about what is triggering this? What's my reaction to that? You want to get in a routine of checking in with yourself. You also want to know your environment. Who are you with? Do you feel safe with this other person that you're speaking to? 
Do they have your back? Do you trust them? Can you reveal your true self to them? Or do you need to develop more of a firm boundary with them? So be aware of your boundary with that person. If it's to feel safe, does it need to be a little more solid? Or can you let them in a little bit? But never use your boundary as a way to stay hidden and use boundary as an excuse to not show up. You want to be able to show up and build a sense of being more sure of yourself and speaking what your thoughts are. The thought process gets easier the more you practice it, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and you get to narrow down the people that you feel you can have those kinds of conversations with and reveal yourself and your, your thoughts a little bit more too. Some people will receive it a lot better and you can have a great dialogue. Some people you probably need to um, really watch your boundaries and make sure you're keeping yourself emotionally safe. When I was about 30, maybe 32 years old, I had my son when I was 31. And I was in this neighborhood group of women who, like, we all had playdates together. Our kids were the same age. And since I was new to the area, it was my attempt to make friends. And this group of women in so many ways was so giving, like kind, supportive, But there was such a competition about losing baby weight, even how cute you looked in workout clothes. There was some of these women who were going to like two or three classes at the gym in a row. They drop off their baby in the childcare, like the on-site childcare for two or three hours. And there were aspects of it that really made me self-conscious. And I felt the need to embrace that same preoccupation with fitness and appearance. But I really had no interest in working out two or three times per day. Like for me, going to a class two or three times per week felt pretty good. But later, after I had moved on from those friendships, I had experienced a divorce. And you really do create a different social circle when you go through something like that. I look back at those friendships. And this is now like 10 or 12 years ago. And I just think, what was I doing? How was that healthy friendship? Even though those women weren't overtly mean or saying things that were unsupportive. I do remember going to a book club group and the three of us like lingered in the evening after the meeting was over and we were chatting and I said something about baby weight being hard to get off. And I remember one of them saying something like, yeah, you're not looking as slender as you normally do. And I remember at that exact moment, knowing exactly how much I weighed and completely feeling humiliated. Uh I remember thinking, They've actually talked about this with each other, like behind my back. Instead of me thinking, what? What am I doing here? Instead, I was like, oh, I should work harder. It was not healthy. And I don't feel as though I have a history of eating issues or body image issues, like generally over the span of my life. But if I had been more sensitive, that could have gone really dark for me. There was probably aspects of my divorce that really got me out of that clique of women, Because who knows what might have become of me had I stayed around that sort of culture. Those women were actually more of a blip in my social world. But man, it was not healthy. Thank goodness it was a blip. Yeah. And, you know, that was your community at the time. And you bonded around being mothers together and being in this general area. But some of those pieces were really harmful. And I think that the community of women was kind of blind to it. They didn't have a sense of what they were doing and what they were conveying. And to be able to, or to have to find yourself in a spot where you have to separate out from something that feels toxic or harmful, that's a really difficult thing. So parents, whether you're an adult or for your teens, please just kind of find support to help you get out of a situation like that. If you're in a friend group that is making you feel bad consistently, it might be time to make a shift. And I was oblivious. I like to think of myself as a self-aware, healthy person, but there was a culture of acceptance and we had all just had babies, you know, like that's a common thing to have a baby and think, oh, I'd really like to fit into my jeans someday and not have to wear this maternity bra. For sure. Yeah. And so we took something pretty common and twisted it just a little bit into something ugly. And every single one of the women in that circle had a little daughter at home. Every single one. Yes. Yeah. So imagine what the messages those little girls had been picking up over the years. Thankfully, when it comes across my Facebook feed or I see a picture of some of those women, I see them with different friends and doing different things. And I see them looking happy and healthy and having all different shapes and sizes. And I feel reassured that maybe when these women stepped away from that group, they also felt a sense of relief and more body acceptance. Obviously, I don't really know. I hope that for them. 
I hope so too. And it's, you know, we've been talking today about the impact on teens, um, women as well, but teens mainly from the cultural expectations. But when you're thinking about new moms, there's a huge impact of what your body should look like post baby, how quickly they can lose the weight and what the exercise program is going to be and the eating program. And it becomes a thing. And it kind of gets stuck in your mind that this has to be the thing. I have to lose that baby weight as soon as possible. And it doesn't have to be the thing. Loving your baby and staying with the bonding and the attachment and cozying in at home and going on walks in the sunshine with the stroller. This is what those first months need to be about. So I think our focus has really had morphed. And I'm hoping that there's a movement away from that as we're having more diversity in our cultural pressures and expectations. Um, One other piece I will say on boundaries is you want to make sure that you're not falling into caretaking or deferring to others or giving in to other people. I hear teens telling me all the time that They don't want to say or do this because people are going to think badly of them or they're not going to want to be their friend or, wow, that was too much. I don't want to talk to this person because they're always talking about their feelings. So there's an expectation that I can't use my voice and I can't reveal because it's going to change how people think about me and I'm going to lose people. And again, that's about knowing where you stand in the relationship and having relationships be reciprocal. You give and you take and you give and you take. So you're not just being that easygoing, go with the flow, I'll be fine with what everyone else is deciding kind of person. You might really be okay with that. But if you feel that you have to be that in order to be accepted into your friend group or with a friend, that's when you want to take a look at, you know, how do I show up a little bit more? How do I bring my voice into this relationship and, ex- and have an existence in this relationship a little bit more? That's going to be another really important piece. So ultimately, just know your voice. Speak up when something doesn't feel right to you, when you need to let someone know how you're doing or what you might need from them and be your true self and enjoy your life. Be you. That's wonderful advice. Now, Sona, you have given us so much great information today, and I cannot express to you how appreciative I am that you're here. Anna and I were talking, and we just feel like we've learned so much. And just to go behind the scenes for a minute, you and I know that we did this interview in two parts. So Anna and I had a chance to listen to part one together and then come back and even get more information from you, which was wonderful for us. I do want to make sure that people who are listening know how to reach you. You have a therapy practice in California. That's where you live. But you also have a reach beyond California because you have an online women's community. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those things? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, my practice is in Southern California. So within California, we can do telehealth, of course, but in person in my office, which right now at the time of this recording, we're in a pandemic. So we're, I'm not working in the office. I'm working from home doing telehealth, but that's my therapy practice in Westlake Village, California. And I work with eating disorders and body image and trauma and relationships. I work with individuals and couples and families, and I just love that work. I've been doing it a long time. And if you want to learn more about that, you can always visit my website, which is Dr. Sona Delergio. And then the other piece that's really new, I just started it this spring, is the We Connect Inner Circle. As you mentioned, Tara, that's the online group and community for women. And I have wanted for a really long time to be able to help women outside of the one-to-one work I could do in my office. And so this is kind of my baby around that. And so it's opened up an opportunity for women to come join together in community, which we really do need to be in relationship for our growth and our healing. That's where we can best have that forward movement. But it's online, so you can access it from anywhere geographically, and it's really affordable. It's a monthly fee that would be less than if you were coming to my weekly women's group in my office. So it's financially accessible too, and I wanted to be able to make this work really available to people who may not be able to do therapy or who want to belong to this community of women. We're really focusing on helping women break free of what keeps them stuck and really grow into the freedom of an empowered life. The website for that one is weconnectcircle.com. Okay. Well, 
I'm going to make sure to include this information in the show notes so that if anybody's listening to this episode in their car and can't write this information down, they'll know where to find it. So I'd just like to say once again, Sona, thank you so much for being here with us. Yes, thank you so much, Sona. Tara and Anna, it's been great to be with you. You guys are a wonderful team. I just love it. And I love your curiosity and your openness. And thank you so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. Mom, I really love this episode. Me too. I learned so much. For those of you who are listening, we really appreciate you being here. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned. New episodes come out on Wednesday. Love you, Mom. Love you too, sweetie. Hello, this is Anna from One Day You'll Thank Me. We just wanted to let you guys know that we are looking for sponsors for our podcast. We've had a great response to our podcast so far, and we'd love to hear more about your product or service, especially if you have a product or service related to teens, parenting, or mental health. Please contact us at www.drterryegan.com.